28 to 3. These numbers will live in infamy in my mind. For those of you who don't know the significance of those numbers, there are a few of you might have an inkling of why those numbers are so important. Some of you do not know why those numbers are so important. The year was 2016. My Atlanta Falcons had made it to the Super Bowl and were crushing the New England Patriots. For nearly three quarters, they had destroyed and confused and just brought to, it seemed like the knees, this mighty dynasty that had existed. And I had grown to hate the Patriots, as many of you have. Most people won't remember where they were that day. I remember exactly where I was. I was in Mark and Barbara's house, pacing nervously behind their couch, See, 2016 had been a very good year because earlier in that year, Clemson had won their first national championship in 35 years. I was also at Mark and Barbara's house. This was a good sign. And then the world began to turn upside down. Can we just get a first down? Can we get a stop? How did he catch the ball like this with three defenders around him? What is going on? I watched in despair as that lead disappeared over the next, oh, I don't know, 19 minutes of game time. And then they went to overtime and I knew, I knew it. Whoever wins the coin toss is going to win the game. I just knew it. And they gave the Patriots a two-headed coin. I'm just telling you, that's, that's what happened. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. You know, watching that game was much like watching two different games, right? The first part of that game, up where we got that 28-3 to lead, it just seemed like it was all the Falcons. Everything. Got a pick six on Brady. They couldn't do anything right. And then when they started doing things right, it was like we couldn't do anything right. What had changed I think part of it, at least as far as the game is concerned, is that uh, one of the things I had noticed during that last quarter was that Atlanta started playing not to lose. They had played it safe to try and run as much of the clock off of the, the game clock as possible, putting themselves in predictable downs and distances where it was much easier to defend by the Patriots. The Falcons playing not to lose cost them a Super Bowl. I truly 100% wholeheartedly believe that. After playing aggressively their style of football for over three quarters. What does that have to do with what we're talking about with Nineveh, right? Well, 
we got to read two books of the Bible this week. We got to read the book of Jonah, which many of us do know probably pretty well. It's one of those Bible stories that we grow up in in church, and it's like, that's one of the ones I remember. Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the fish, right? But Nahum is also a book about Nineveh. And these two books really couldn't be any further apart from one another. And so we're going to learn a little bit about these two cities, these two tales of Nineveh, if you will. One of the things we can learn about Jonah is when he was prophesying, when he was preaching. So if you'll turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 14, we get this uh, one reference of Jonah outside of his prophetic book that tells us when he was preaching, when his ministry took place. 2 Kings chapter 14, starting in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hafer. And so we see Jonah's name, son of Hamatai, and this is exactly how Jonah's book opens up. And he identifies himself as that same person. And so Jonah, not to, be, not to belabor what happened with him, is given a message of God, as we read this week, and he immediately said, nope, go in the other direction. I want tickets to Spain. I want to go to Tarshish. I want to go as far away as possible. And once he got on a boat, God kind of, you know, stirred up the sea, stirred up a storm that was so bad that people were like, go pray to your God, please. It is so bad. Jonah is found asleep, much like Jesus. It reminds you of Jesus on, on the boat, right? And there's this squall and he's just sleeping. We're going to die. Jonah's pretty much told the same thing. We're going to die. You know, pray to your God. What God do you serve? I, I serve the God of the sky and of the land. Oh my goodness, what did you do? They casted lots. It's like throwing dice, if you will. And God used the casting of lots to kind of out Jonah and say, well, I'm, I'm basically running from God, right? Here's what you need to do. Just throw me overboard. Now, there are some who might say, well, you know, this throwing of overboard is just Jonah wanting to kill himself, Right? If that were the case, see, all the people outside of that, what did they want to do? They wanted to go back, go back to dry land again. It would have been easy for Jonah to get on another boat to go the right direction, right? I really believe this is of the Lord that's telling him, I want you to be thrown overboard because God is looking for glory for himself. That's what God is doing. God is looking for glory for himself, and so when all the pushing against the waves and trying to go back and find a place doesn't work, they say, oh, Lord, please don't hold, don't hold our hands uh, guilty of the sin of this man. And they throw him overboard. 
And of course, then the sea stop, the sea and the waves and all the storm stops. And what happens? They praise God because of it. And Jonah is in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And he spends that time in prayer. I, I guess if we're in the belly of a fish, I mean, what else are you going to do, right? And he says, I, I will, he commits to God, I will do what I promised I would do for you. And so the fish spits him back up on dry land and he forthwith goes to Nineveh. And this is where we pick up in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And when news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose up from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call on urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they had did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Jonah comes with a very harsh message to the people of Nineveh. Not even turn and repent. Forty days and Nineveh's no more. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. And all the people from the least to the greatest hear this message of this prophet who's been spat out by a fish. And they listen. And they realize, I think this is really from God. So much so that the king says, don't let anybody eat anything. Humble yourself. Put on ashes, sackcloth. Walk around in mourning. Turn away from these sins. Maybe God will see our humble repentance and not bring upon us the disaster that has been promised by this prophet. And God sees and God relents. And Jonah's not happy about it. All Jonah 4 is about Jonah's complaint that God is merciful and compassionate. That's why he wanted to run away. But we see a Nineveh right here, a Nineveh very different than what we see in Nahum. So what has happened? Well, first of all, we have somewhere between 100 and 150 years that have passed between the ministry of Jonah and the ministry of Nahum. Assyria is still rising in power and is the power of that time during Jonah's time, but now they have ascended to their lofty heights at the time of Nahum, 
and we hear a very different message that comes down the pike. Nahum chapter 1. Let's take a look at that together. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkshonite. The Lord is jealous, is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmo wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, and the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are scattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among the thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. We look at the very end of Nahum. The last two verses say this. O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountain with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hand at your fall. Who has, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? So what do we see in this passage in Nahum? Time has passed. 100 to 150 years has passed. Now, it must be noted that Jonah was preaching to the northern tribe of Israel during his time. That's one of the things that we looked at in in this passage in 2 Kings 14. But by the time Nahum is preaching, the northern kingdom of Israel no longer exists because Assyria has come and destroyed it. It has been used by God to be the hand of God to bring destruction. Only Judah remains. And Assyria was pushing hard against Judah and a lot of other places. So what's happened during this time? Well, I think it's safe to say one thing that's happened 
is that whatever repentance happened during the time of Jonah has been forgotten by the time of Nahum. That they've gone back to other ways that are worthy of judgment. As a matter of fact, God spends his time talking about how how slow he is to anger. Jonah mentions that as well. In his, I know that you're slow to anger and you're quick to be compassionate and not wanting anybody to perish and wanting people to come to repentance. Kind of sounds like the heart of Jesus, doesn't it? That's the whole reason Jonah didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites to begin with. And God reaffirms that these are still his characteristics as he prepares to bring down judgment on Nahum 100 to 150 years later. He talks about that he's slow to anger. That he has come to the end of his rope as it pertains to Nineveh because now there is going to be judgment that will not be overthrown. Because of the cruelty that has been picked up by Nineveh. I think that what's happened during the years in Nineveh concerning the preaching of the word of God during Jonah's time is very reminiscent of what we saw in Judges concerning the people of Israel. If you'll turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2 is after the death of Joshua, after the death of this whole generation of Joshua. And the people of Israel were supposed to go out and conquer the rest of the promised land, the land that was given to them by God and has not yet been fully conquered and, and meted out to the people of Israel. In verse 10 in chapter 2, it says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. In my opinion, when we look at the book of Judges, this is the key verse of all of Judges. It ends with, at the end of it, when we look in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, in those days Israel had no king. Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the result of this in verse 10 in chapter 2. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asterisks. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them and he sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from the way which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, 
He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. This is exactly what we're seeing happen with the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh were given grace by God because from the greatest to the least, after hearing the preaching of Jonah, they said, maybe God will relent. Maybe God will listen if we humble ourselves. Everybody needs to pray to God, not to a God, but to the God. Put on sackcloth and ashes and pray. And God delivers the people. A people that weren't even his. In the sense that Israel was his. But the same God showing compassion to this people. Because he's a compassionate God wanting all to come to repentance and come to know him. And for a season the people of Nineveh did. And because they did, God relented from his great anger. But here's the problem. Much like my Atlanta Falcons, they stopped playing offense when it came to faith. Much like the people of Israel during the time of Judges, they stopped playing offense when it came to faith. This is how a whole generation from the people of Israel could grow up after they had conquered, after they had conquest during the promised land under the rule of Joshua could turn around and say another generation grew up, grew up right after Joshua's generation who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How could that have happened? They just kind of stopped talking about God. And God warned the people of Israel that this is exactly what would happen if they didn't do what he had told them to. So if you'll turn with me, to the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 6 we know pretty well. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give you today are to be upon your lips. Talk about them when you wake up in the morning when you walk alongside the road, when you sit down to eat, when you lay down at night. But what we don't realize oftentimes is those same words are repeated here in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And there's a little bit more context that's given within the Deuteronomy 11 than is Deuteronomy 6. So I want to read it to you. Deuteronomy 11, first starting in verse 13. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. 
Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain on the ground and will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates so that your gates and your, the days, uh, that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth." See, for us to create a heritage of faith that is not going to be just one generation long, we have to play some offense. We can't just be happy that we, who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are happy knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It can't just be about us knowing God and building our relationship with God. Because that doesn't pass down faith to the next generation. It didn't work for the people of Israel and it didn't work for the people of Nineveh. They couldn't live on their past glory. And what had happened? God had said, if you don't do this, if you don't get up and talk about me, walk alongside the road and talk about me, sit down and talk about me, lay down at night and talk about me. Here's what's going to happen. Your children are going to be tempted to worship other gods. The gods of this culture. The gods that threaten to drag them away from God and bring the judgment of God upon them because of their lack of faithfulness. This is what happened to Nineveh. This is what happened to Israel. And this is what happens individually to families who do not make the Lord the subject and the desire of their household. It's just the truth. We go to church, but we never talk about God. That's not going to produce faith in a land that we're living in right now. It just isn't. We go to church, but, you know, we're doing everything that everybody else is doing. We're just hoping our kids catch it. Not the way that faith passes down. See, what happened to the people of Israel, the, a generation grew up that neither knew the Lord nor what they had done for Israel. One generation. How did that happen? That happened because parents kept it to themselves and didn't teach their children about what the great things that God has done. Didn't take the time to say, this is important. Remember what we read during communion. I pass this down of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he rose from the dead, that he rose three days later according to the scriptures. This is what we preached and this is what you believed. 
See, our kids need to hear this from us, parents, those of you from an older generation. We are supposed to be proclaiming the faith of Jesus Christ to that next generation, or we will see the next generation end up like the people of Israel and Judges, or like the people of Nineveh, who had the prophet who came there that they listened to, but it didn't really make that much of a difference. That was a great experience. But it wasn't a faith that lasted. And notice the charges that are given to the people of of Nineveh through Nahum. He says, you know, they know of your cruelty. They know that you're worshiping other gods. Remember, these are the same people 100 to 150 years ago who repented, who prayed only to the Lord, who prayed to Yahweh at the instruction of Jonah and the overthrowing of Nineveh. There was faith to be found in Assyria during the time of Jonah that had disappeared because it was a neat event. God relented and they went back to ways just like the people of Israel did so many years ago that were worse than before. This is why Nahum ends, who, has, who hasn't known of your cruelty? See, not preaching the word of God to our kids is not just about them not knowing Jesus. It's about them not doing things even worse than what our culture is already doing now. Think about that for just a moment. It's not just them knowing Jesus. It's so they don't get swept away by all the godlessness that our culture is currently involved in. And not just that, but doing worse. This is where the judgment of God comes down. And so for you and me as parents, you and me in this generation, you know what that means for us? We gotta start playing offense, right? We gotta start start doing what Jesus has called us to do, raising our children in the Lord, by making that of first importance in our families. It's more important than anything your children are going to do. I don't care what they do. It's more important than the career they're going to have. It's more important than um, the job they're going to get, the money they're going to make, the titles they're going to experience. All the world that they're going to see, if they don't know Jesus, I'm telling you, in the end, nothing else matters. You don't go to a funeral and you look at over all their accolades, it means nothing. Having just read through Ecclesiastes recently, going through that with our youth group right now, we're, we've been talking about that a lot. Meaningless. Vanity, chasing after the wind. It means nothing. All of us are destined, every single one of us are destined to end there. Your children are destined to end in that same grave unless Jesus comes back before. And the only thing that's going to matter at that point isn't going to be how much money they made, what they did in life. It's going to be whether or not they knew Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, and for you and me, that's got to be priority number one. 
of first importance. I've shared this of first importance, of first importance, of first importance. Because if it's not, they're going to be tempted by the gods of this age. And the only way to win the game is to go on offense. Every single time they replay highlights from the Patriots 28-3 to deficit to victory, I turn the channel. I do not want to be reminded of the failure of my team who decided to play it safe, who decided to, to not to lose rather than to go for the win. And in the end, they lost because of it. So every single time that comes up, I see memes of it, people post it on my, on my board just to have fun with me. I had to wear a stinking Patriots jersey the next week. It was the most painful thing I ever had to do at church. That was even more painful than the pink Romo jersey, and that was painful. And we can all laugh because all that cost was a little bit of pride, right? My team stopped playing offense. I lost a game. I had to wear a jersey I didn't want to wear. That's just a pride thing. It's really not that big of a deal in the, in the grand scheme of things. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something greater. That if you and I stop playing offense when it comes to our kids and their knowledge of Jesus Christ, when the time comes, we won't want to be reminded of their unfaithfulness. It'll break our heart every single time we see it. And we'll pray for a return or we'll pray for them to come to know Jesus. And you and I will regret forever, sincerely. I'd love to say that we wouldn't, but we'll regret forever if we have not done our best to make sure that our children know Jesus Christ by making him a first priority in our family. We'll have those regrets And unlike the game where it was just a matter of pride, this has eternal consequences. You and I need a plan. You and I need to make it of first importance so that they don't become like Assyria. They don't become like Israel. They don't become like those who say, you know, I wish I would have done this. You guys have more resources here than you've ever had before. One of the things that I do in in ministry is I share with families how to build a discipleship plan for their kids. If you have children, I don't care how old or how young your kids are, I have stuff for you. I really do. Because I want to help walk you through stuff like this. I believe it's a part of the ministry that God has given me here at Heights and part of the greater ministry of what I'm doing outside of Heights as well. You have the possibility and the tools to do it because some of you might be saying, where do I start? You have a place to start. Come and talk to me. 
Let's sit down and make a plan for you and your children for that next generation. Sincerely. Let's make sure they don't go the way of Nineveh. Don't go the way of Israel. Because we can build this into your family to where you're talking about Jesus all the time. When you get up in the morning, when you walk alongside the road, when you sit down to eat, when you lay down at night, just be part of the conversation in your household. As natural as talking about the Falcons. Not even joking. I pray that's you. I really do. I pray that's you. And if you have kids, you need to come and talk to me. Let's build that faith up. Let's make sure that we don't see them falling and having regrets because they've fallen into things worse because we didn't make the thing that Jesus wants a first priority and a first importance, the most important thing in their life too. Would you stand with me? God, we want to thank you for today. I want to thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for all the people who are here, all the families that are represented, Lord. God, we want to build, dear Heavenly Father, a culture of faithfulness so that we do not run into the same problems that Nineveh did and having a different reaction from the time of Jonah to the time of Nahum. That we don't run into the same problems that the judges had where the people did not pass down their faith to their children and they were oppressed because you were against them, O Lord, and the things that they've done and breaking that covenant relationship. God, we want our children, dear Heavenly Father, to know the name of Jesus Christ. We want him to be Lord of their lives. So help us to build a culture, dear Heavenly Father, where we're talking about Jesus all the time. When we get up in the morning, when we walk alongside the road, when we sit down to eat, when we lay down at night, may they hear the words of Jesus on our lips. They can build on the foundation and the rock of Jesus Christ and no other. And as a result of that, that this foundation of faith will remain for generations to come. I want to see children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren have a legacy of faithfulness to you, O God. But it starts with us making sure that you're the most important in every area of our life. And if it's not right now, Lord, that you have given us the opportunity to make that plan now, that we can turn away like the Ninevites did the first time that they spoke with Jonah and turn away from those things that are worthless and turn toward the living God and make a plan to make him preeminent in our lives and in the lives of our children. God, help us to do that to the glory of Jesus Christ whom we serve. All God's people said, Amen. So what do you guys need to do? Do you need to make a plan of faithfulness? Well, I'm inviting you to come and talk with me sincerely for you and for your kids. Set up an appointment. We'll we'll talk about making a real plan. Not like, here's, here's some sheets of paper. Start planning that out. If you need to change that, that's that's what this time is for. We invite you here at the end of the service. We're going to have our elders coming up front. If you have any prayer needs, whether it pertains to what we talked about in the sermon or just other prayer needs, prayers of healing, prayers of other needs that you have, we invite you to come and pray with our elders or write a prayer request and put it in the back boxes. We would love to pray for those needs. Otherwise, go out and live a legacy of faith, making Jesus preeminent in everything you say and do. God bless you. Have a great week.